We come to a place in the book of Luke where Luke is going to give us a little bit of a, kind of a parenthetical thought here. This is Luke chapter 9, verses 7, 8, and 9. Luke is going to tell us about the reaction that has happened thus far in the ministry of Jesus. So let me just read this for you, and then, then we'll talk about it here for a minute. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man? about whom I hear such things. And he kept trying to see him. Last week, we saw that Jesus had come to the place in his ministry about two years in, maybe two and a half, somewhere in there. It's difficult to figure out the exact chronology of the life of Jesus uh, and every, you know, pin down every event. But somewhere on the two-year mark of his three and a half years of ministry, two plus a little, he's now got the 12 and he's sending them out. And when he sends them out, this is pretty much his last Galilean campaign. Uh, The Galilean region is, it's about 50 miles, well, you've got the Sea of Galilee, right? So you've got about 50 miles to the west, and, uh, sorry, 50 miles north and south, and about 25 miles west, and that's the Galilean region. Not really that big, 25 miles by 50, give or take. Uh, Jesus has been at it now for a couple of years himself, and there's quite a few towns, a couple of hundred actually, in that area. It's a very fertile area, and so there's a pretty good population. But Jesus is not, I mean, remember, he's already gone to a place where, remember the, the leader of the synagogue came to him and said, I want you to heal my, my daughter who's dying, and Jesus was so mobbed, he could barely make it to the guy's house. So this is what Jesus is being presented with everywhere he goes. So it's difficult for him to move around very much. People are just mobbing him all the time. So we're going to appoint the 12, and we're going to send them out two by two, and send them out. And they go out, and they preach the same message and perform the exact same works that Jesus does. But this is is pretty much it. We don't have an exact time for how long Jesus sent them out. Month, maybe, give or take. Um, we saw that he sent them out with no preparations, just go out and stay wherever, and, and they will eventually come back, and they'll report what's happened. But while they're out there, this, of course, amplifies a lot the message and the ministry of Jesus, such that it comes to the attention of Herod. Herod now is going to look at the situation, and, and it's, he's going to hear what's happening. This is really bursting out. Because it's not just Jesus now. The entire Galilean region, we've got, we've got six more teams of guys who are performing the exact same thing. I just want to uh, just want to toss in here. It's, it's the last little section there, but I think we ought to look at it. Herod tries to see Jesus. Um, if you look in the Old Testament in 2 Kings, there's a king back there who is an enemy, it's King Aram, and he's an enemy against Israel. And he keeps setting up ambushes. He's determined to ambush Israel, and it never works. And so he finally calls his guys together, 
and says, he gets all his advisors together and says to them, and this is 2 Kings 6, it's like, will you tell me which one of us is for the king of Israel? I mean, how is it? We set up these ambushes, and we know for a fact that this is where the king goes, and next thing you know, the ambush is there, he never goes there. And of course, someone says to him, uh, no, my lord, O king, it's Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. He knows exactly what you're doing and exactly where you're going. Something tells me that that is Herod. Herod's got the same problem. I'm going to see Jesus. I am going to. And I think he goes out to find Jesus. And what do you know? He just never actually does see Jesus. Not until the end. I think Jesus, uh, without any real effort whatsoever, just manages to thwart. And when you read about Herod, we'll talk about him here in right, just a second. Herod is, he is petty. He is easily manipulated. This guy is not, don't historically place on this guy some kind of, some kind of dignity that he does not deserve. That's not who he is. This is a guy who is going to, He's going to do terrible things. He's a terrible ruler. Um, he's, he thinks he's a big guy. He likes the term king and likes to apply that term to himself. But remember, he's, in the, he's part of the Roman Empire. So he's got the emperor. And he is only a tetriarch, a term Luke uses. It's a legal term. The other gospels will refer to him as a king because he, he likes to be referred to as a king. But the fact is, the actual, if there was one, any king at all, was his father. And his father was Herod the Great. Something tells me his dad really liked that term, too. Loved to be called the Great. Herod the Great, you may recall, was quite the winner himself. This was the guy that, when Jesus was born, had every child in Bethlehem killed. What a guy. This is a guy who had multiple wives killed. He had his children killed. This was a guy that when the moment came for him to die, the Sanhedrin, made up of 70 leaders in Israel, 70 of the most prominent rabbis and, and leaders of the Jewish nation, that was the Sanhedrin, 70. When he died, his instructions were, since he ruled over Israel, the whole, the whole territory, when I die kill the entire Sanhedrin. We don't know historically whether they actually did that or not, but that, those were his orders. Because I want Israel to mourn when I'm gone instead of throw a party, which I know they do otherwise. That's the kind of guy he was. What a guy. Well, when he dies, the kingdom is divided up into four areas. A tetriarch, four, that he gets one-fourth of the area. So he only gets one-fourth. Even as a ruler, it's like, you know, you're pretty petty. You're just this little part. Israel, to begin with, wasn't that big a territory. You were Herod to rule over, the, the father. And now you only have one-fourth of that whole slice. So this is a guy who you will recall, um, he, he met his brother's wife. He decided he was going to go to Rome. And on the way to going to Rome, he finds his brother Philip's wife. And the two of them hit it off. That's great. And he decides that uh, he's just going to take his brother's wife. She's ambitious. He's on his way to Rome. And he is, after all, a tetriarch. And so she leaves her husband. 
And Jess goes with Herod, heads him to Rome, and goes back with him to rule over the Jews. Well, John the Baptist gets up and says, hey, Herod, that was wrong. You got no business doing that. And if you're going to rule over the nation of Israel, we are God's people, and this is the holy land, and you're acting in an unholy manner. Oh, Herod was really, he, he, that was not good politically. But if you think Herod was upset about that, oh, his wife, man, was she mm, really mad. So she, the moment comes to throw a party, and she, it, one of the Gospels actually says, strategically sends her daughter in there, Herod's stepdaughter. And she dances for Herod, and the idiot actually promises her half the kingdom. Really? Really? Uh-huh. That's the kind of guy this is. Promises half the kingdom to a girl who dances for him. She, of course, goes out and talks to her mom, who says, get John the Baptist's head. So she comes back in and says to Herod, I, I want Baptist, John the Baptist's head on a platter. You know, he could have easily said, sorry, that's the wrong half of the kingdom. I mean, really? You're just going to let some little girl manipulate you into murdering an innocent man, which, by the way, Herod knew John was completely innocent. But, well, uh, oh. So the guy is easily manipulated. He's vain. He's he, unbelievable. This guy is unbelievable. And, of course, he's running around because he wants to see Jesus so he can see a miracle. Oh, I've always wanted to see a miracle. That's the kind of leader this guy is. Uh, not a good guy. So he thinks, and one of the other Gospels makes this very clear, Luke just says that he was greatly perplexed because it, some said that John, this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Jesus was. But the chief person who actually said that was Herod himself. This was his theory. Back in, if you look in Matthew 14, Herod says to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And this is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Okay, what's actually at work is the conscience of Herod. That's what's at work. And he's killed an innocent man, and it's disturbing him, by the way, as well it should. And in the account of Matthew, we're not going to go through it, but Matthew actually gives a very detailed account of how Herod ends up killing John. What's interesting is we're looking at the reaction of the nation to the ministry of Jesus. And here's what they conclude. Well, maybe it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's Herod's theory anyway. Others are like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's Elijah. We all know he didn't actually die, right? He just rode up to heaven in a chariot. Maybe he's come back. Others that he's, you know, one of the prophets of old. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Maybe he's Isaiah. Maybe he's Ezekiel or who knows what. Zechariah. One of these prophets. Um, this, is, this is the response of the nation. And when we think about this, okay, wait a minute. Jesus has been at this for two years, he now sends out his disciples. Two by two, they go out in pairs, and they proceed to do the exact same thing that Jesus is doing. Up to and including, Matthew includes, that they raise the dead. These are people who are now going out, and whatever kind of illness you have, they're healing it. Whatever kind of difficulty you've got, they're casting out demons, they're giving sight to the blind, they're causing the lame to walk, they're doing everything that Jesus is doing. 
And so as they go out, and they're declaring, by the way, that the kingdom of God has arrived, and they're out here stating exactly who Jesus is. He has, he's, our, he's, he's come here to bring about the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You would think people would repent. But the fact of the matter is, they don't. And we know that when Jesus sends out the disciples, they go out there, and they're, they're out there preaching. And when Herod asks, who is this guy? He doesn't ask, who are these guys? Because they're giving all the glory to Jesus. When they get out there and they're doing this ministry, it's like Peter. Remember when after the resurrection, Peter goes into Jerusalem, and he's by the gate called Beautiful, and the guy is standing there asking for alms, and Peter says, well, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, stand up. And the guy stands up and starts dancing and, and leaping for joy. And he goes into the temple complex with them. And, and Peter, everyone is just rushing there like, wow, did you see this? I mean, Peter, what a guy you must be. And Peter's like, wait, wait I'm not doing this under my own power. Why are you looking at me? I, this is the power of Jesus of Nazareth, by the way, who you all crucified. Now, at this point, they're just going out. But this is the lesson that they're learning. When they go out and heal everybody, they're not talking about how great they are. They're pointing everyone to Jesus. Everyone needs to start thinking about who is Jesus. This is the question that Herod is going to ask. Who is this man? An essential question to ask. What's interesting is what they conclude. Come on. Jesus has been out here doing all of these miraculous things at will and telling you, by the way, that you all need to repent, as did John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, what an interesting theory here. John didn't do any miracles at all. Jesus is doing all of the miracles. And he's been doing them for at least two years, maybe two and a half. He's been doing this for quite a while. What do they conclude? Do they conclude that, oh, Jesus must be our Messiah? No, he's just one of the prophets. Okay, let's stop and think about that for a minute. If he's one of the prophets, you still should be responding completely positively to the message that he's giving you. You still ought to be repenting. But let's just stop a moment and look at how exactly did they all respond to the prophets. Come to find out this crew, this generation, this group of people are responding to Jesus just like the Jews of the past always responded to all of the prophets. I mean, if, if they think Jesus is, well, he's, he's, I don't know, maybe he's Elijah or maybe he's Jeremiah or Isaiah or one of the prophets. Well, all right, how did that actually go? Let's look for a second at the ministry of Elijah. So here's Elijah, and he's out here trying to get the nation to repent. And remember, he does the deal where he goes up to Ahab and he says, it's not going to rain until I say it should rain. And then off he goes. Three years, no rain. The end of three years, he comes back. He says, all right, it's time to gather Israel to Mount Carmel. Gets the whole nation up there, all the leaders, everybody who's anybody is there at Mount Carmel. And he stands up and he says, all right, let's just have it out here. If God be God, let's serve him. And if Baal be God, let's serve him. And the people answer him, not a word. Nobody's standing with Elijah. 
Nobody is over there like, yeah, Elijah, he's our guy. Yeah, he's had it stop raining now for three years, and we haven't seen a cloud in three years. Uh, so he's clearly a man of God, and we're standing with him. Oh, no, they, don't, they say nothing. They don't stand with Elijah yet. Uh, they will. And, of course, the prophets of Baal get up, and they do their thing, and they scream and yell and holler, and he mocks them. You know, hey, better call a little louder. Maybe he's sleeping or on a journey or who knows what, where in the world he is. And, and they end up cutting themselves. And, I mean, they're just leaping around. It's like, okay, okay, okay. For the time of the evening sacrifice, you guys sit down and relax before you kill yourselves here. And he rebuilds the altar, and he sacrifices the ox, and he pours the water, the barrels of water, digs a trench around it, and pours water till it fills the trench. Now remember, there's not a cloud in the sky, and there hasn't been a cloud in the sky in three years. And he prays, and out of a clear sky, the fire falls. At that moment, everybody repents. A little bit. Enough to kill all the prophets of Baal. But then he goes back to Jerusalem. When he gets back to Jerusalem, Jezebel says, Well, may the gods do the same to me and more also if I don't kill Elijah. Well, come on, he just did Mount Carmel. Nope, runs for his life, heads off to the wilderness. And when he's in the wilderness, he speaks. Remember, that this is the situation where he's, he's out there in the wilderness and there's the big fire, and then the earthquake, and then the strong wind, and then finally the still small voice, and that's God. And, he's, and God says, what are, you, what are you doing out here? He's like, well, Lord, the nation has completely abandoned you. This is, this is no one who stands for you anymore, except me, and they're trying to kill me. Okay, so if you're an Israelite, and you think Jesus is Elijah, What are you thinking here? You're like, you know, maybe we shouldn't be like the people in Elijah's day. I don't know. Maybe we should actually repent since <clears throat> apparently no one did when Elijah was there. I mean, yeah, it's Mount Carmel for just a minute there. But the fact is that there was not national repentance. So you would think that people would go, all right, if this is in fact Elijah, maybe this time we should, unlike our forefathers, we should listen to him. Not so much. Even though they think he might be Elijah, they're still, not, they're, they're still not repenting. So here's Elijah. He's trying to call the unfaithful to be faithful, and they don't do it. What about Isaiah? Well, maybe he's Isaiah. All right, how did Isaiah's ministry go? You paid any attention to Isaiah's ministry. Because if you read the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, remember I saw the Lord God high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and his voice shook the foundations. And God ends up in verse 8, he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, Lord, send me. And God says to him this, like you want Isaiah coming back. God said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but you're not going to perceive. Keep on looking, but you're not going to understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Make their ears dull and their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. What a ministry. Hey, Isaiah, I'm going to send you to a people who aren't going to hear a word you say, they're not going to see a thing you do, and they're not going to respond at all. They're just going to be hard-hearted and reject you. Then I said, 
Oh, how long, oh Lord? I mean, surely that's just going to be the initial response, right? I mean, eventually my, it's going to go good, right? God says, uh, well, until the cities are devastated and without habitation, and the houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. That's the ministry of Isaiah. So it's kind of like, all right, well, maybe he's Isaiah. All right, if he is Isaiah, how did that go? If you're the people of Israel and you think Jesus is Isaiah, are you, how are you responding? Kind of find out you're responding exactly like the people in Isaiah's day did. Which is what? They didn't listen to him. Here's Jesus. You're not listening to him. Doesn't matter if he's Elijah. Doesn't matter if he's Isaiah. How about Jeremiah? Well, maybe he's Jeremiah. Well, how did Jeremiah do? Well, the ministry of Jeremiah, and if you read the whole book, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. When Nebuchadnezzar shows up, he sacks Jerusalem three times. The third time, he finally just takes the temple right, and he just destroys it. He drags the whole thing down to the Kidron Valley and just wipes it off so it's flat. He burns the gates. I mean, he just destroys the place. But each of those, he has to siege the city each of those three times. Every single time, they come to Jeremiah and they say, what should we do? And he says, well, what you should do is just give up and redeem your life and go out there and surrender to Nebuchadnezzar and just get taken to Babylon and get over there and get on with your life. Don't worry, he's going to put you in a nice place. It's going to be a place for you to grow crops and to just put down roots and just relax. You're going to be there for at least 70 years anyway. Just go. If you stay here, we're just going to, your life is going to be at risk. And three times he tells them that, and three times they just, they just fight Nebuchadnezzar until he finally you know, overcomes them a better tactician than they are. And he destroys, he, he defeats the city three times, and every single time Jeremiah says to them, you need to just turn your life over to Nebuchadnezzar and he'll spare you. Nope, every time. And the last time, by the way, not to be too graphic, but the last king, and he, he kills all of his kids and puts his eyes out and drags him off to Babylon in chains. Uh. Jeremiah's like, I told you. I told you. All right, so that's all done. Nebuchadnezzar now finally leaves a guy in Jerusalem, which, you know, the gates are torn down. The place, the place is a disaster. It's been destroyed. But there's a remnant of people there. Uh, Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar keeps him alive, and appoints a guy to finally watch over them all. And it's like, look, we're done here. I'm not coming back. You guys, just stay in the land and see what you can do. We've hauled off anybody who has any skills at all, and they're already all in Babylon anyway. So you guys just kind of stay here and see what you can do. I mean, take care of the land. It's hard to collect taxes from dead people, so you got to leave somebody in there to do something so you can come back. And he does leave a guy in charge, and so they kill the guy in charge, of course. And then they come to Jeremiah and they say, what should we do? They've already asked Jeremiah three times what they should do. And you're thinking at this point, all right, so we got this, right, finally? All the commanders of the forces. Uh, this is uh, Jeremiah 42. Uh, Johanna, and the son of Korath, and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people, both small and great, approach, and they say to Jeremiah the prophet, Please let our portion come before you and pray for us to the Lord your God. This is for all this remnant, because we are left but a few out of many, as your eyes see us now. That the Lord God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing we should do. 
Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I, I've heard you. I'm going to go pray to God in uh, accordance with your words, and I'm going to come with the whole message which the Lord will answer you. I'll tell you. I'm not going to keep back a word of it. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message which the Lord your God will send you to us. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you in order that it may go well with us when we listen to the word of the Lord our God. You're thinking, well, this sounds good. I mean, wow, we, these guys, finally, finally, after three times being completely devastated by Nebuchadnezzar and everybody is anybody dragged off and you're now sitting here literally in the ruins of your nation with smoke just rising. You finally come to God and God's man and say, all right, whatever you say, we're going to do it. We're humbled now. We're repentant. We mean it. We're actually going to listen to what God has to say. You can read the whole account for yourself. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I suspect you've got a suspicion as to how this goes, right? So, sure enough, what happens is it came at the end of 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and he calls them together, all the people great and small, and says to them, all right, God has in fact spoken to me, and here's what he has sent me to tell you. You need to stay in the land. If you will stay in the land, I'll build you up. I won't tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. I will relent concerning the calamity that I have inflicted on you. You don't need to be afraid of the king of Babylon. Don't worry. I've I've, I've taken care of him. Uh, You're fearing him, but you don't need to be fearful. I am with you, and I will deliver you from his hand. I'm going to show you compassion. I'm going to have compassion on all of you. There's just one thing I don't want you to do. Whatever you do, do not leave the land. And go to Egypt. Whatever you do, don't pack up and go to Egypt. If you think going to Egypt, and I'm, you know, paraphrasing here, but you can read the chapter. It's, it's, I'm not going to read all the verses. It takes two chapters for Jeremiah to get around to saying this to them. But basically, if you go to Egypt, all of the things that you're trying to flee, famine and peril and sword and death, and all, it's all going to follow you right to Egypt. And, of course, it does. We know, historically, it does, because Nebuchadnezzar does come back. But when he comes back and he, and he heads down, he's going to walk right past Israel. He marches his armies right past Israel, never goes up to Jerusalem, doesn't care about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a defeated foe. Where he goes is down to Egypt, and he goes to war with the Egyptians. And guess who's there? Yeah, these guys. So, verse 19 of chapter 42 The Lord has spoken to you, O remnant of Judah. Do not go into Egypt. Chapter 43. As soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord God had sent, had finished telling all the words of the Lord to this people, this group, made up of the exact same people you just heard, Azariah and Hoshiah and Johanna, the son of Korah, all these guys, all the arrogant men of Jeremiah said to him, arrogant men of Israel said to Jeremiah, you're lying to us. The Lord hasn't sent you to us. You're, you're just saying we shouldn't enter Egypt because, because you're in cahoots with Baruch, the son of Nera. He's inciting you to go against us so that we'll all just stay here and fall into the hands of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, and, and they're going to kill us all. No, the last thing we're going to do is stay here. We're going to Egypt. 
Okay. You know, maybe Jesus is Jeremiah. You know, maybe. Maybe Jesus is Isaiah. Maybe Jesus is Elijah. Maybe this group of people are acting exactly like their forebearers acted. They're condemning by just trying to make Jesus out to be one of the prophets? Well, okay, are you paying attention to what Jesus is saying any better than anybody else did to any of the prophets? No. No. Just like nobody listened to Elijah, and nobody listened to Isaiah, and nobody listened to Jeremiah, nobody's listening to Jesus. But the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem at the end of his ministry here, how, but the time they stand up on the, at the day of Pentecost, how many people are actually there with Peter? 120 folks are all that they have as the ministry of Jesus. That's it. That's all they got. They got 120 people who are sitting up there in the upper room with Peter praying that God will take care of this remnant. That's it out of the whole nation. That's the ministry of Jesus while he's alive. Now, of course, I mean, here we are. We're still talking about the ministry of Jesus. But in his actual lifetime, if you were to look just with physical eyes at the result of the life of Jesus, you kind of go, wow, I'm not sure that was particularly successful here. You ended up traveling around and preaching a lot. But uh, when it was all said and done to actually count up how many disciples you ended up, well, you got the 12, and you got the 70, and then you got a few hangers-oner. But, you know, when we gather them all together, 40 days after the death of Jesus at Pentecost, you've got a whole 120 people. That's it. God, of course, is going to completely turn the world upside down through those 120 people. But from an outward appearance, nobody's really listening. And that's the point. No one is listening. And this theory that, oh, Jesus is one of the prophets, that sounds religious. That sounds good. Oh, yeah. We, well, Jesus is one of the, one of the people of God. We, we still don't come to the conclusion that he's actually the Messiah. We just think he's one of the prophets. How's that going? Well, uh, if we actually stop and thought about it for a second... We probably shouldn't say that because we're just condemning ourselves one more time because, you know what, we're not listening to Jesus any better than any of our forebears listen to the actual prophets. So when Herod says, and it's a great question, who is this man? That is the question. It was a question for that day. It's the question for this day. It's the question for eternity. This is the most important question you are ever going to be asked. And it's a great question, if you're trying to share the gospel with people, to ask. If you find yourself trying to share the gospel with people, and the next thing you know, you're wandering around in Ezekiel, and you're talking about the chariot and Revelation, and, and you've got scrolls and seals and bugs and things crawling around, and you're wondering about, and, and you're like, wow, how do we ever get around here? I, wait, I thought we were trying to talk about the gospel. What you need to ask is, so who do you think Jesus is? Just get all other stuff, like... You can, who is Jesus? That's the question. Because if you answer that right, you will have the gospel. You answer that wrong, you can have everything else, it doesn't matter. You must ask, who is this man? And this is the point of the gospel of Luke and the others. They're striving to answer this exact question. It's asked all the time. In Luke 5, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to reason among themselves and say, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
remember the guy showed up and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Like, wait, who's this guy to forgive sins? Good question. Who is this guy to forgive sins? Because only God can forgive sins, which, by the way, is an absolutely correct observation. You're right. Only God can forgive sins. That's why Jesus is forgiving this guy's sins. In Luke 7, 19 and 20, summoning two of his disciples, he sent them to the Lord saying, this is John the Baptist sends them, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And when they came to him, Jesus goes out and shows them all the things that he's doing. I am the one that John is looking for. Here you go. Here's all the evidence. Good question, John. Here's the answer. I'm exactly who you're looking for. When Jesus calms the storm, he looks at them and says, where's, where's your faith with you guys anyway? And they look at one another and they say, who is this guy that even commands the winds and the waves obey him? Yeah, you're right. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? And of course, here we have Herod asking the exact same questions. Shortly, we're going to see that Jesus is going to look at his disciples and say, who, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're, and they'll go down to this list and they'll say, who do you say I am? And that's when Peter will finally come out with it. Ah, you're the Christ. You're right, don't tell anybody. You'll have to wait till we get to that passage to see why he told them, don't tell anybody. But the fact is that this is the question when they put Jesus on trial. Very interesting trial. He's not on trial for what he did. He's on trial for who he is. They will crucify him, not, not for the miracles he's done, not for the good works that he's done, not for raising the dead and, and healing the blind. They, will, they don't crucify him for that. They crucify him because who do you say you are? Are, are you, tell us, plainly, are you the Christ? Uh, yes, he says to them in Luke 22 when we get there. Now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. Are you then this Son of Man? Yeah, I am. What further need do we have of witnesses? He's blasphemed, let's kill him. We're not going to kill him for what he did. We're going to kill him for who he says he is. Wow, interesting trial. Put Jesus on trial for who he is. That's because the dividing line between heaven and hell is the answer of the question, who is Jesus? That's how you're going to know where you will spend eternity. If you believe that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, he is God in the flesh, he is the one who has come to lead a perfect life and to die in your place, then you will spend eternity in heaven with him. You will be part of the family of God. Your sin will be forgiven. You will come to Jesus and say, thank you for dying on my behalf. I don't know what you were thinking. What were you doing leaving heaven to come down here for the likes of me? I can't believe it, but thank you. Thank you for doing that. You conclude that heaven is yours. You conclude that Jesus was just a nice guy, a good prophet, who knows what. Um, to this day, I, I remember just recently listening to an interview with Ben Shapiro. Those of you who are familiar with Ben Shapiro, he's a, he's a uh, really smart guy, uh, graduated from Harvard. He, he's just got great credentials. He's an a interesting guy to listen to. He's Jewish. Uh, he said, well, when I read the New Testament, I see Jesus as just like one of the prophets, you know, maybe Jeremiah or Zechariah. To this day. Here he is, a, a, you know, an Orthodox Jewish guy going, yeah, Jesus, I've, I've read the New Testament. He's one of the prophets. 
And we still are. And by the way, uh, nice guy, Ben Shapiro, but if he doesn't figure out that Jesus is his Messiah, when the moment comes that he stands before Jesus, it's not going to go well for him either. We must have a right view about who Jesus is. That is the dividing line. There, there is only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that name is Jesus. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. To as many as believe on his name. If you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. If you don't believe in the Son, you'll not only not see life, but the wrath of God will abide on you. That's who Jesus is. We must, when we share the gospel with people, draw a bright line and help people understand you stand on one side of this line or the other. You either believe Jesus is who he says he is, or you don't. And we don't want to blur that line. We don't want to make that a hard line to figure out. We want to make it clear. Jesus is God in the flesh, or he's not. And he led a sinless, perfect life and died for you, or he didn't. Make up your mind. Decide. Who is this man? Because that is going to determine your eternal destiny. And this is why Luke includes this. He'll talk about it in other places, but he throws it in here to show that when Jesus acts, people are confronted with a choice. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You can't just think he's a nice guy. He doesn't let you think he's a nice guy. He's not just a nice guy. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. There's your decision. This is not just a nice guy with a nice message preaching nice things about God. He's telling you that if you want to get to God, you need to go through him. If you don't think that, then you're not going to get to God. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. That was the message of Jesus. And so we are confronted this morning. Who do we think Jesus is? Make sure you've answered that question. Make sure you've made up your mind. Today is the day to be sure and make up your mind. We're about, in a moment here, to enter into our communion service where we, as the body of Christ, gather in a community affair to thank Jesus for dying for us. Everyone is welcome who believes that. If you don't believe that, I would encourage you to think carefully about participating in this. But for all those who do, we're happy to have everyone here to gather as the body of Christ. But you need to decide, like Herod, who is this guy? You need to answer that. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He has come to die for us. That's who he is. And that's what the gospel is all about. That's what the whole book of Luke is about. These are written, John writes in his gospel, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your willingness to come to die. You did not have to. You were in no way obligated. It was purely your love and kindness and your willingness to extend grace and mercy to us. May it forever transform us. May we never lose the wonder of your grace to us. As we now enter into our service of communion, doing this in remembrance of you, 
may we remember your willing sacrifice on our behalf for our sin. You certainly didn't need to die. You had no sin. And so you became sin for us so that we might have your righteousness. If there's anyone in this room, Lord, who has not come to you and thanked you for that, may this be the morning. May this be the day. Bless our service and your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.